It's my favorite time of day. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. I'm Haley Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, Counter Stories producer and VP of programming at Ampers. And I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions I hold are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And Anthony Galloway um, is unable to join us today, but I'm extremely happy to uh, announce that we have three wonderful guests joining us today. Uh, The three of them worked on a project. I'll have them introduce themselves and talk a little bit about what the Truth Project was about. Hello, Buju. My name is Misty Blue. I'm a member of the White Earth Nation. I also have descendancy and relatives out at Lower Sioux Indian Indian Community. Um, I was appointed by the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council uh, to be the project coordinator for this. So it was a partnership between MIAC, the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council, and the University of Minnesota Office of Tribal Nations Relations. And uh, Bushu, everyone, Adriana Goodwin, Indigenous Cause, Washku Benesikwe, Nindigo, Miss Kwagami Wizagai Gunning, Nindun Jaba. Um, greetings, my colonized name is Adriana Goodwin. I'm a citizen of the Red Lake Nation. Um, my role in the project is um, a researcher, and I was also um, a tribal research fellow appointed by the Red Lake Nation. Anin Ogabewa Sikwe Indigenous Kaz Gasaga Squajame Kag in Dunjba Gamasquawako Kag in Dayan. I'm Lori Harper. I'm the director of education for Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. And I was a truth research fellow under this project appointed by the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. Thank you and welcome to Counter Stories. Last week, I just happened to catch a report where you guys were talking about this research project concerning the University of Minnesota that you call the Truth Project. And so, Misty, I'm wondering if you could uh, explain what the Truth Project is and kind of go over some of the uh, summary findings of this report. Sure. So we're excited that the report is out and available on the MIAC website. It has been a long time coming. We've been working really, really hard on this for um, years at this point, honestly. And what it is, is is an examination of tribal university relations, past, present, and future. So... As you might already know, the University of Minnesota is a land grab university, and so it was able to establish itself through the um, wealth transfer and wealth accumulation uh, made from land grabs. Um, We wanted to open up this conversation because it wasn't something that has really been discussed in detail and um, the University of Minnesota really hasn't cultivated those strong, strong relationships with tribes up until this point. Um, so the, the impetus of this work really was twofold. I think first it was uh, Minnesota Indian Affairs Council, MIAC, issued a series of resolutions back in June of 2020 that was calling on the university to be better relatives um, with tribal nations and tribal, tribal members and, and the community as a whole. Um, and it was also, uh, there was an expose uh, 
published in High Country News that really examined uh, this land expropriation, but uh, but it examined it across the board. So they went completely wide and went to it started exploring all 52 land grab universities and the land that they received and were able to map it out. And what our project endeavored to do what was to start to go deep and start to look deeply at one university and really understand what um, has happened since the the uh, origin or since the start of the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So, Misty, you, you've said now land grab a couple of times, and just for our listeners wanting to make sure, if you can draw uh, some clarity between land grant and land grab, I have a sense for what you're going to say, but I, I think that's something fundamentally that we need to clarify early on that might be um, something that our listeners are are dwelling on right now. So we um, have chosen in our project to use the word land grab. You know, we often hear land grant institution, land grant, grant university um, touted, and it's, you know, it's uh, sort of a celebratory um denomination. But what we actually found was that during this this land, uh, the expropriation of the land, there was actually a lot of violence and harm that happened. And by, you know, celebrating this history, we're not really focusing in and, you know, we're, we're kind of making it revisionist history. We're kind of saying that it's, you know, this great thing that happened, but but indeed there was harm and, and there was violence behind the treaties that, um, the congressional acts and then the treaties that were part of a land grab. Well, I, I think, Misty, I think what, um, you know, on previous counter stories, I've mentioned land grant. And I think what, you know, I if I was to elaborate on that a little bit, most of us, most folks don't even understand what land grant means. And it's when you, and or they don't understand when they talk about, you know, they're the fifth generation that lives in Minnesota on farmland. They don't understand the history of that because that land came from us. Mm-hmm. That land was taken from us. Um, and I mean us collectively, Dakota, Ojibwe, and other tribes that have historical ties here to what is now called Minnesota, that land was taken from us through a series of treaties. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. was during that time of treaties that my understanding from what, from, uh, because I haven't had, that this report is 552 pages, so I haven't had a chance to read through the entire report, Mm-hmm. But my understanding from it is, is that I think the University of Minnesota played a much larger role in, in what happened even during like the maybe some of the negotiations that happened with the United States government and and the tribes at the time. Because there are I think there are a lot of variables that were at play during the t- during treaty making with many of the. Uh, with many of the different tribes in this region during that time. But they ended up with large parcels of land, some of which may not be attributed directly to the treaties that were made here in Minnesota, but collectively with these 52 other um, institu- higher institutions of, of learning, 
um, received land as a result of it being taken from tribes in the United States. Is that correct? Yep, you're describing it well. Um, we, the university, did receive a large, uh, a large grant. I guess they were given. They expropriated a lot of land. Um, we also found out through our research that uh, other universities received Anishinaabeg and Dakota land as well. So we, you know, heard from and talked to people at Cornell, MIT, UW Madison, Ohio State. Um, I believe there was a couple others that we were able to talk to as well and, and try to understand, you know, how they're reckoning with having received um, indigenous land from Minnesota being so far away. And this was also, um, you know, they needed a mechanism on which to launder or to, you know, um, to flow that sale of those lands through. So that Morrill Act of 1862 was a part of that mechanism that um, you guys are both explaining. Um, and then... <clears throat> And it was very intentional and, and deliberate as well. So the university um, was signatories on those treaties, the founding board of regents. So men like Alexander Ramsey, you'll see him on the 1863 Old Crossing Treaty. You'll see him um, on other signatories. And so you can't really differentiate um, if Alexander Ramsey was acting in capacity as board of regent or acting in capacity as as the um, governor of the state of Minnesota. And so it's really hard to, to see where um, that distinction is because it, it feels really blurred to us through the documentation um, that Anne Garagiola, she's also a part of our research team. Um, she spent a lot of time really looking at uh, that specific piece of history. And another way that they were able to uh, amass um, all of this wealth through those sale of lands um, was through the Permanent University Fund. And um, that was just one area that the University of Minnesota was able to make um, you know, wealth off of, uh, perpetual wealth throughout time. And one of the findings from the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs from the um, Resilient Community Partners Fellows, uh, that was uh, Kyle Malone, Maddie Bozich, and Shu Peng Wang. They found that the University of Minnesota received a return on investment of twenty five thousand um, percent from these um, these lands that we're talking about. One of the big pieces that people don't understand um, that we learned throughout this research um, that is never talked about in history, right, in our school settings whether it's in a K-12 setting or a higher education setting, is that the federal government was broke. They were making promises to American Indian tribes to pay without having any money in place. And so it's really important to understand like that background, what Adriana was talking about and what Misty was talking about in who the treaty negotiators were with mm -hmm. our ancestors here in this area, mm -hmm. in what is now Minnesota. And the University of Minnesota was founded before the state of Minnesota was even a state. You know, like understanding those pieces of history that these treaty negotiators were founders of a university. And they were literally like one of the present. I'm at Minnesota Indian Education Association today. And one of the um, 
keynotes talked about the actual history of the Ojibwe and Dakota people. And then even further back, like looking at like um, land and maps and places from the 1700s. And a lot of our research here under the Truth Project focused on that time frame and time period around the founding of the University of Minnesota, right before Minnesota was considered a state. So understanding to that, we have that history prior to the University of Minnesota and prior to Minnesota statehood as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a bunch of questions, but <laughs> uh, I'll start with this one. Um, so you, you've been working on this report for a long time and now you've got it out. And what was it that you were hoping um, would come out of this report, this 500 plus page report? Yeah, I think we, the process that we did this was super important, right? Because this is something, this is a really important history and it's, it's a collective history and it's one that has been sort of covered and buried for quite some time. And so we were very intentional during the process to do it together. And by that, I mean, do that in partnership with the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council, but also in partnership with each and every tribe here um, also considering, you know, when possible, the people who were exiled from this place at that same time. We talked about 1862. That was the signing of the Morrill Act by uh, President Lincoln. It was also the same year of the U.S.-Dakota Wars. It was also, I just learned yesterday, was the same year as the Ho-Chunk were exiled from, from Minnesota. So, mm-hmm. um, so Min- again. Min- Minnesota took... They took the the opportunity to ex, to exile the whole chunk, even though they weren't involved with the with the uh, uprising. But they used that opportunity to kick them out of here. Also, I mean, you know, those are historical pieces that uh, most Minnesotans uh, have no idea about. Right. Right. And that was 1862. But, you know, once we started looking at that time, that date, we said, actually, the university was founded in 1851. What happened there? Again, Anne Gargiola went in, started looking at the, the founding board of regents, found out that the initial grant that they had received, um, they had mismanaged completely the funding. And so they were on the brink of bankruptcy and then had mm-hmm. to do the second land gra- mm-hmm. grab mm-hmm. through the Morrill Act. Mm-hmm. Misty, when I was reading the summary, and I'm going to go to a point that both you or you have alluded to as, as well as Adriana, is when Adriana was saying it was uncertain whether Ramsey was there as governor or as a regent, you know, part of me is reading your summary and listening to you, and, I, and I'm thinking I can't help but to wonder that was not a coincidence, right, that they were there. Um, keeping the circle tight and small so that they could then strategically pass anti-Indigenous legislation that fulfilled these needs that you're saying, right? The near brink financial um, ruins of the university, but also of the government as well. Do you want to speak to that? Because I think that really is something that we need to lift up. Um, because those are those unspoken stories. Otherwise, 
that our society begins to create this narrative of heroes and they did all this great stuff. But as you said, it's revisionist, right? And so this is about truth and reconciliation. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on that. Sure. And I can just, I just want to add one point and then I'm going to let Adriana jump in actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The other Mm -hmm. thing we have to consider, yeah, they they were uh, legislators and they were board of regents, but they also had their own private companies as well. Mm-hmm. So that's the other, I think the, the trifecta that I wanted to just highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll let Adriana speak a little bit on that. Yeah. Yeah. And so another really interesting piece of this story, um, again, that Anne was researching was that um, they also surveyed the entire state of Minnesota or the geographic boundaries of Minnesota. So they were able to identify where those groves of forest um, that they wanted to cut down and sell. They were able to, you know, identify different waterways. They were able to, um, you know, utilize their inside information to hand pick and to hand select those lands. I also want to take a moment to um, talk a little bit about those, um, that, that generational wealth or those private investments that the University of Minnesota um, and their founding board of regents were able to um, uh, take advantage of. And so we think of General Mills. So General Mills today uh, was started by Pillsbury and Pillsbury was on um, the board of regents at one time. And so now today, the General Mills company, I think they might have sold, but they're worth $1.7 trillion. And it's no coincidence, again, that um, the University of Minnesota and those men, those people very close to them were able to hand select those lands. They were able to survey the lands. And so they had that firsthand inside information to that and what else is really interesting, when they were surveying the lands, they had found that there is a very large drop in the Mississippi River, um, a very significant place for the Dakota people. And they were able to um, generate the power from that river to uh, yeah, to generate power for their mills um, to create their flour and all of those things. And so the the impacts throughout time, really wanting to Im- to emphasize those impacts th- throughout time. And, and Lori talks too about that in her report that she did for Leech Lake about the dams. And again, the University of Minnesota was involved in hand selecting and hand picking where those dams would be at along the Mississippi River Corridor. Can I just say, like, we keep talking about, like, these white men who had friends in high places, who have all this money, who did this. And we have these three amazing indigenous women here who are doing this research. I just want to, like, give flowers to that because I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Dawn is so outnumbered Mm -hmm. on this screen right now, uh, (laughs) surrounded by all of these Well, you know, there's um, there's so much to this report. I mean, we're, I feel like we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, um, I'm going to share, I'm going to share just my personal, a personal story history that I have with the U, even though I went to the university and got my graduate degree from there. Right. But, you know, also, I mean, not only the, the land grabs, but I think the historical history that the university of Minnesota has taken, um, 
I would say against indigenous populations, especially us here in Minnesota, you know, um, I taught at Metro State University, and I've mentioned that before in the School of Social Work, but I taught a class called Comparative Ethnic and Racial Analysis. And in that class, we talked about the intersectionality of race and racism and and the history here in the United States. And I would use stories. And one of the examples I used was a professor named Albert Jenks, who created the anthropology department at the University of Minnesota. And I used him specifically because he was instrumental now, this is after, you know, we went through the series of treaty making here. And there's there's a whole thing about that treaty making that I, you know, I we just don't have too much time to cover. But during that time, I mean, this was after the Marshall decision where Chief Justice Marshall had made the decision concerning the Chipper, uh, the Cherokee tribes in, uh, in Georgia, where the state of Georgia was trying to in- take the Cherokee land that at that time made up two-thirds of the state of Georgia. And it went to court. It went to U.S. court because the Cherokee were trying their best to do what white settlers asked them to do, which was assimilate, was was to adopt their ways. And they attempted to do that. But in doing so, they ended up in U.S. court. And the Marshall decision made a decision that while tribes were sovereign nations, we were more akin to uh, like a, a guardianship. Right. It was more of a we while we were sovereign, we didn't necessarily have the right, which we did, as they teach us in history, to be able to negotiate with anyone, Italy, France, other European countries. But this decision limited that ability for us to be able to do that. Now, what I find interesting about that is that most indigenous populations had no idea of this court case, the Ojibwe, and I'm assuming the Dakota back here in what then would be like the Minnesota Territory, we had no idea that this decision uh, impacting the Cherokee in Georgia would have an impact, you know, because our people, our pe- that wasn't our way of life. So when folks like Ramsey and others representing the Minnesota Territory and the University of Minnesota were aware of these court decisions and aware of the land, the wealth. Uh, they wanted the timber. They wanted all these things. And so they were very intentional in their negotiations with us. Well, I'm sure our forefathers came with a whole different mindset in terms of what we were trying to negotiate with the United States. But that was a long story to get back to Albert Jenks, because after these treaties were put in place and there were still efforts to get um, to get the timber, especially at White Earth. Right. They were trying to get the timber off White Earth for these companies to come in and and uh, and harvest the uh, trees there that um, Albert Jenks and one other individual, I can't remember his name. They were commissioned by these timber companies to do a research project because at the time of the Dawes Act and Nelson Act and and the Morrill Act, um, land had been broken up from from trust holdings on the reservations and divvied out to individual households on the various tribes in Minnesota. And, um, but... 
you couldn't sell, if you were a full-blooded Indian, you couldn't sell your plot of land. So how do you prove who's full-blooded or not? So they commissioned Albert Jenks and this other individual to do a study to help them determine who was full-blooded, and they did so by using the, I think it was the Prima Indians in, in southwestern United States, who they, who they considered to be the most uh, indigenous tribe that was full-blooded. But, I mean, just think of how crazy that is. They go to a whole different region, to a whole different group of individuals um, that speak a different language, that have a different culture, that... And then make it determine using hair, the size of our noses. What other crazy stuff? You know, they use this these crazy identifying markers to determine who was full-blooded and who wasn't full-blooded on the uh, White Earth Reservation. And they use that report to um, allow the timber companies to come in and take that land for that timber. And I would use that as an example in my classroom. And so our history with the University of Minnesota as indigenous individuals has not been a positive one. Most of the research that the university has done about American Indians or indigenous populations has not been in our favor. And when I was I was commissioner of Health and Human Services for the Mille Lacs Band in the 90s, and one of the counties um, got two professors from the University of Minnesota to do a research project on the, um, there were a lot of DUIs. A lot of, the police were stopping a lot of individuals for DUIs, which was co uh, causing the county to have an increased cost for for uh, their sheriff department, so they wanted they wanted the Malax band to go with them to the state legislature to ask for more money. So they commissioned this report through the U that showed there was a direct correlation between the amount of tourists that were coming up to Malax to go to our casinos and then getting drunk resulting in these DUI arrests. So they went through this whole presentation to us on how our casino was responsible for these increased DUIs. And after their one-hour presentation, when they got done, they looked at us and they asked us what we thought about it. And our response was, well, that doesn't make sense to us because our casinos don't sell alcohol. Did you go to the bars? So, I mean, I, I use that story just to show how they had expended all that money. This county had expended all that money for that research project, and we shut it down with that one response. So it seems like, like uh, going to the U of M to do all this research is the way to go because where else would you go? It's the oldest institution in Minnesota, but they themselves have this whole history of land grabbing and treating the, the communities that were here and the communities that come later poorly. Um, and yet everyone continues to look to them as kind of the star because they're our oldest 
institution. Did you guys personally have any issues like when when you were asked to come on this project? I'm wondering because um, just today I was over doing some research on Hmong history for a project I was doing for a project I was doing. And I was going through these old photos that had been donated and they're old photos from the war. And it's just like mangled up bodies of, of young Hmong children who, you know, died during the war um, who were left behind, who were killed by communists. And I just kept thinking to myself, because the the guy who who um, runs the place was like looking for volunteers. And I just thought, I don't think I could do this, like live through this trauma again. So what what about you guys? Like, I, I'm really interested in hearing your stories of like, oh, yeah, I want to do this project, even though there's so much trauma behind it. If I can give it just a quick overview and then um, of, of the process. So you mentioned r- research and not trusting the university with this type of research um, for a number of reasons. And I guess that's why we wanted to lead this. We wanted to have all Native research team and the way that um, uh Tad Johnson at the time, his office was able to partner with Mayak, allowed me as the coordinator to then reach out to all of the tribes. And I, you know, had meetings with every single tribe and I was telling them, this is the issue. It's not very, it's not well known. Um, this is, you know, what we're learning right now. And we want to do this together and we want Native uh, people to be driving this work. And so we were like, send us someone to join our team. And that's how Lori became a part of it. That's how um, Adriana was appointed as her tribal research fellow. And we have uh, tribal research fellows from each of the tribes. So you asked about the trauma and how did we navigate and how did we like look at it? One of our first organizational meetings with the whole research team, once all the research um, team was appointed by their tribal nations, um, we were asked by... Um, Misty and by the University of Minnesota, um, like, what else can we provide for you? And I, and I suggested, you know, like, we need spiritual guidance. We need to be able to make space for that grief because what we're going to be delving into is, um, our ancestors' stories. There have been stories told about us, but never through our own lens, <clears throat> never through our own voices. And um, Misty worked miracles along with Anne to um, find folks that were available to us that could help us navigate like a grieving process, right? Which was was so... Um, so well needed and so much needed. And then um, every time we gathered collectively, we did our Asemake, we, t- we did a talk for our tobacco, even even though all of our, the, the bulk of our meetings took place virtually. We felt that that was important to center our ways of being and to be able to tell and start our days and our pieces off when we gathered together in ways that um, took care of ourselves spiritually and emotionally. Um, and then to get into the, the, um, the traumatic part, 
Like my focus, my intent on the research project was to take a look at the history of the dams. I could not get, um, so Leech Lake situated, here's my picture. Um, the headwaters are just north of the border of Leech Lake Reservation. Um, our, my ancestors are credited with like helping the um, folks find the start of the Mississippi headwaters. And when you pile on everything else that was going on in this territory at the time, like they were looking at our land, our trees, um, how best could they benefit the business makers, the business owners in the in the metro area, in the more populated area. Um, and that was through building these dams. And those dams impacted for within my own family. There is a story that my grandfather told about being raised with his grandfather out by Buck Lake, um, where his grandfather told him about coming out during the spring thaw, so right around this time of the year, and trying to, like, having to portage much further with his canoe than he was used to. And when he finally got to open water and he put his canoe down, like, understanding that our people navigated through the waterways, not through roadways, but through the waterways. And when he looked at the landscape he realized that he was looking at something totally different. So when he made it to where he needed to be, got to other relatives, um, there was talk about this dam being built and the impact that it had. So when he went and visited those relatives out by what we call Federal Dam now, <clears throat> there was a flooding of burial sites, of traditional harvesting sites, of... Um, wild rice beds that all of a sudden our folks didn't have access to the foods and the berries that they were used to having access to. Their rice beds were flooded out. Um, their burial sites were flooded out. They didn't consult, but there's all sorts of newspaper articles that we were able to find that talked about how the Chippewa Indians were going to molest the uh, dam uh, builders and what that was going to do and how it was a, a wild Indian uprising that they were going to be on the lookout for. And it's all this like you know, put yourself in that time frame of reading about your ancestors and it's all this hateful, racist vitriol, right? And then having to step back and go, I love myself. I love my ancestors. I love the fact that we're still here. And how did our folks navigate that at that time? So within our stories, hearing my grandfather tell me that when he was 78 years old, like he told me his grandfather's story. And then he told me his story about his mother being excommunicated from the Catholic church. So in the 19, 
20s in Cass Lake, you were considered the best Indian if you were baptized Catholic. So in the town proper of Cass Lake, you had that social standing in the 1920s of being a good Indian and a upstanding citizen, um, even though you were brown skinned. And my grandfather was sent to a boarding school, not once, not twice, but three times to Pipestone. He ran away following the train tracks. The third time he ran away, he it was um, it was just starting to turn winter here. So it was like around November, December of that year. And he went to Buck Lake. That's how he ended up being raised by his grandfather. And when the spring thaw came out, his mother and the Catholic priest come out and his mother was dressed all in black. Horse and buggy. The road was finally clear enough to bring the, without breaking the buggy wheel. And his grandfather told him to hide. So he went and hid on the other side of the woodshed. And his grandfather says to his mother in Indian, what are you doing here? What's wrong? And she tells him we have some news. And she's speaking English to him. And the priest comes up and just glares at my grandpa's grandpa and tells him, your grandson, Alvin, passed away. We have to go find his body. So the Catholic priest is lying to my grandpa's grandpa, trying to cover his ass. And my grandpa made a noise, came out from behind the woodshed and stood there. And the priest like swore at them, told them that, you know, they were going to pay for this. And that if he didn't go back to school, that it would be on him. And so at the age of 78, my grandfather tells me the story and shares it with me and tells me that that was the last time that he had ever been physically hugged by his mother. And she refused to speak Ojibwe to him anymore. She did not take him back with her. Her reason for moving out from Buck Lake over to Cass Lake was because they didn't have access to fishing. They didn't have access to hunting their regular area. And so these dams had this intergenerational impact on my own family. A loss of language, a loss of historical or access to our historical sites that were important to us, our burial grounds, our our natural gathering places. And so when we talked about the, you know, how did we, did we want to do this? I honestly, I was like, I don't know if I want to die. I don't know if I want to do this. And when I presented it to our tribal council, like, hey, we need a researcher here. They just kind of went, well, you're the ed director. You can do it. We'll allow you that time. I was like, okay, okay. And honestly, when I, when I, so through the project, we had a team of folks that were assigned to us through the university that would help us navigate and help us um, get access to the records that we needed to. For Leech Lake specifically, our records are not held in the state of Minnesota. We um, approached 
both um, the Minnesota Historical Society for records on the dams. And we got those newspaper articles, but we were very specific about who worked. We needed to know who helped plan, who helped um, develop the plans. Was it the Army Corps of Engineers who really, you know, it was the Army at the time. Um, was the University of Minnesota part of it? And we couldn't find that. We had conversations with what is now the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and they were like, yeah, well, you know, we got archives, but they weren't like in any kind of order. Um, and the research that we did, we um, came up against uh, notes very specifically, like looking for those records at the Minnesota Historical Society. The The notes in the records where you will find this in the Great Lakes Repository at the Field Museum. And I asked several times, like, the Chicago Field Museum? Why are our records there? So access to our own records was um, challenging at best, but also, like, being able to have unfettered access to our records is what's needed. And I can, I know um, there's probably a question here, but uh, real quickly, I know for us at Leech Lake, we've like taken a look at this, at the research that what little bit we were able to do under the Truth Project as just a starting point. And so as a division director, you know, taking off my hat as a researcher on this, I've been able to build into my budgets positions for researchers. And what we've done and what we're doing this year too is we're training community members to do our own research. We're sending, we've sent a team out to Kansas City National Archives. In a couple of weeks, we're going to Chicago. So we'll be doing the Chicago Field Museum as well as the archives in Chicago. And then in July, we're planning on going into the National Archives again in D.C., and we've asked throughout this process, we've asked our community members, like, what is it, what is most important for you for any researcher to bring back? And the most response that we've received are any songs that pertain to, um, pertain to our ceremonies that were here at Leech Lake. So Onigam and Bear Island areas, but also any field notes, not just like the, the copies of the, the treaties, but field notes from the translators, because that is where we will find why our records are not held in the state of Minnesota. Wow. There is a whole lot there. I mean, there's, uh, <clears throat> You know, it just talks about it, it. Talks about, I guess, those the broken mechanisms and the um, kind of hidden hidden histories or secrets or divulging of information that that only went one way. 
right? That that information was only one way, and none of that was conveyed. I I bet you none of that was conveyed during these negotiations with our forefathers, and <clears throat> you know I'm. Uh, but I think that the, your report touches on you know not just the land grab, but it you know it, it I. It, when I looked at the findings, it did touch on some other areas in terms of that re- tribal relationships with with the U. And I know one of the outcomes I, I think as a re- prior to uh, your guys's work on this report was um, the University of Minnesota making this decision to offer a free or reduced tuition to um, and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but to some some of the tribes that are that are here in Minnesota, is that correct? Yes. But that kind of eliminates other tribes that might have or or indigenous populations that had historical connections to this area. Um, for instance, you know, my my daughter went to the University of Iowa. She's at the University of Iowa, and they actually offered her in-state tuition because. The Ojibwe had a historical tribe or historical connection to that land, to that area. And so University of Iowa offered her in-state as opposed to out-state. Minnesota and Iowa doesn't have a reciprocal uh, relationship. But, you know, I think the, the because uh, I know from a tribal perspective, when I worked for my tribe, um, we didn't trust the U. Right. I mean, they're they're just we didn't trust the University of Minnesota because our relationship and our history with the University of Minnesota uh, wasn't very favorable. None, none of the research or reports they put out about us was in our favor. It was usually for the gain of the university and or other entities in the state other than us. And so I know when I was at Mille Lacs, uh, we always kind of tiptoed with the U when it came to those kind of interactions. Even, you know, even though I had attended that institute and, and when I listened to you talk, you know, um, I also did a research project with the Center of Urban and Regional Affairs. And I did so with uh, the uh, American Indian uh, Research and Institute Policy run by John Poupart back in the 90s. So in that, that I had to fight tooth and nail because I was obtaining a degree in social work and the social work department had never sent a social worker to the American Indian Research and Policy Institute. So I had to fight tooth and nail and they made it quite hard. I ended up having three social work supervisors that I had to appease while I did this research project that I had to go through in order to complete my uh, research portion of my of my uh, degree program. So they really made me jump through hoops. And <clears throat> there was no tribal liaison office back then. There was no, you know, so those of us who kind of made it through that institution, we had to fight tooth and nail on our own to stand up because I, I essentially looked at him and said, wait a minute, you're going to tell me that a, a Native American social worker cannot do a research project at one of the few American Indian research and policy institutes in the United States? Is that what you know? That's exactly what I told him. 
But you know, I digress. So I'm just saying that you know this goes very deep because my mother was one of those last generations sent to Pipestone. Flandreau, Pipestone, well, first Pipestone, because that's where they sent the younger kids. And then when they got older, they sent them to Flandreau, South Dakota. And so, you know, all of us have those those stories and those connections to that, to um, what was done to us, right? Because those boarding schools were created in order to hurry up our assimilation into the dominant culture. Uh, so they came at us in many ways. Right, they they came at us through the land. They came at us through our culture, um, in order to you know end us as Indian people. You take the children, you take the language, you take the culture, and you end it. I mean, so they we were attacked on many different fronts simultaneously, and yet here we are. You know, we're still here, and so I think. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Luz. I'm interested. Sorry, Don. I thought you were done. Um, I was thinking, you know, in, in light of just uh, time, you have some incredible recommendations um, across a handful, a little bit more than a handful of areas that I'm looking at at your summary here. And wanted to hear from you uh, in terms of next steps, what the game plan is, but also how has this been received quote unquote, <laughs> by different audiences. And then the larger picture in terms of national endeavors, right? Because uh, this focuses on University of Minnesota, but uh, you all have referenced that this goes beyond this, the border here, beyond the state line. So help us understand as you go forward with this project. And then lastly, how all of us can help elevate this and um, seek justice. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you were just drawing some really important uh, connections. This is the history of the present. And we're, you know, trying to reimagine what the future will look like. We have received so much support. Um, we've seen so many articles and um, media outlets covering this issue. Uh, you know, I think we were one of few who have published on this um, on this issue, but we, you know, again, we, we did a specific process where um, we center Native voices in this. Um, we have recommendations, and I think that we were able to um, unfortunately connect the, the behaviors of the university to um, the UN definition of gen genocide. And so that's you know, those are important pieces to to um, to know about this report. As in terms of going forward, uh, you know, we hope this is this was an opening. We hosted a symposium with U of M leadership back in May of 2022 to open the conversation. We didn't really have a back and forth there, so we you know did uh, print this report and. Um, I think it does have implications for inside the university. It has implications for outside the university. I think this this information that we found intersects with a lot of different um, fields. People can sort of take this and propagate different, um, you know, different projects of their own that connect to their work. Um, and 
you know, we'll be talking more about this at the American Indian Day on the Hill, which is on May 10th in St. Paul at our state's capital. So um, we'll be, I think, you know, diving into some, maybe some things that we haven't talked about here. So that's, you know, more, another opportunity to hear more about our work. You know, with what Lori shared, you know, that's the evolution of truth. That's a tribal nation, you know, continuing to determine their own future, how they want to determine it. And so I think that's a great example of the continuation of truth. Um, and so Chimi Gwichlori for, for doing that. And hopefully through continued um, discussions and continued negotiations that, um, you know, the state government and the federal government will be able to provide us funding um, for whatever we want. Um, in perpetuity, the same way in which that the University of Minnesota and the state of Minnesota and again, the United States government um, have amassed so much wealth that um, very little of that has benefited tribal nations. And um, I guess another thing is that um, we can dream as big as we want and our dreams can come true. And so I guess that that's also a part of it is just wanting to encourage people to dream and um, that we can accomplish great things when we're together. So I just want to add just one piece like from Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe's perspective um, under the Truth Project. One piece that we would love to be able to do is to tie this truth um research the report to the high country news like bring those two together those the the folks who did the high country news um mapping Mm -hmm. and um story to meet with the the like misty and ann and adriana so that we can build um not just the map and then just the report, but have those two married together so that it's easier for us to be able to tell the story. Like this isn't just what happened in Minnesota. You know, a lot of people get stuck in that. This is the story of, um, of us before we were even part of the state of Minnesota or part of the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's I can share that much with y'all on this. <laughs> there is so much more that I think that we need to cover with this truth project. And so I hope that that um, we're able to get the three of you back here to join us again at Counter Stories, because, you know, this impacts indigenous populations across the U, U, uh, uh, Minnesota, across the United States, because the United States, uh, there are other tribes that that. Um, that land grants benefited other higher institutions beyond the Ojibwe and Dakota. The, the, the project you're working on was is looking at the impact of indigenous populations here, but it impacted uh, our, our, our cousins and relatives all across this country. And then also um, this report, I think, is going to get much deeper and find other, other um, intersections between between the beginning of, of the transition of this territory to a state and to the constriction of our way of life from, uh, from uh, wanderers to being constricted onto reservations, present-day reservations. 
So Minnesota Native News, I think, covered a part on uh, on the, the Truth Project, and the University of Minnesota actually released a statement. They released a statement to Minnesota Native News. We are grateful to those from the 11 tribal nations and the other contributors who willingly took on the arduous research, analysis, and consultation that went into this important report on the University of Minnesota's history and how that history has affected tribes. First and foremost, we recognize that the countless hours of work reflected in this report and the truth-telling that will benefit us all going forward is built upon the time, effort, and emotional labor of every individual involved. We want to reiterate our appreciation for each of you. In recent years, the university has committed to acknowledging the past and doing the necessary work to begin rebuilding and strengthening relationships with tribal nations and native people. Openly receiving this report is another step toward honoring that commitment. While documenting the past, the truth report also provides guidance as to how the university can solidify lasting relationships with tribes and indigenous peoples built on respect, open communication, and action. As we engage in the important discussions that will now follow, that guidance will be in, in, in adv- uh, invaluable. Is that the same one from CARE 11, Misty? Or is it a little different? I think it's a little different. Quite generic. Yeah, it was a very nice statement, but nowhere in there was anything about reconciliation, <laughs> about reparations, about justice. It was only about building better relationships with us. And uh, so I find that very interesting and very telling. And you'll notice in and you'll notice in our work, we haven't used the word reconciliation. We really, you know, can you reconcile these types of of actions really? And um, we instead chose to use anchor questions. And we never, you know, we never decided to have the answers or seek the answers, but that offering answers to these types of questions really disrespects the gravity of them. And so the ones that sort of led our work have been, how might this institution serve as a site of healing rather than harm? How do we redress the inequities created through genocide and repression of indigenous peoples and culture? And how do we repair where settler occupation has erased native lives, culture, and histories by exploiting native lands and resources while displacing indigenous people? So those were our guiding three questions. And I guess in response to the statement that you just shared, you know, they talk about discussions, but there were nowhere did they say that they were committing to to putting our recommendations into operation. And that that's really what we're hoping for. We have done a lot of discussions. We have done a lot of consultation already. And what we would really, really love to see is action. Yeah, it's something we've talked about on Connor Stories before where we have so many meetings. We have so many gatherings where we talk about ideas, but then we just have more meetings about talking about our ideas and what we want to see happen. And we don't really see it happen. We just keep having more meetings about wanting to do things. 
In my capacity as a tribal research fellow for the Red Lake Nation, the particular acts that the University of Minnesota committed against young children on a reservation during the 1960s um, is particularly egregious. And so it's just not enough. A three-paragraph statement isn't enough. It doesn't equate or amount to all of the work that all of us put into this 554-page document. Um, these 554 pages are documenting the genocide against our people. Um, and we deserve more. We deserve better. And that's where that action piece comes in that was asked, um, you know, about five five or seven minutes ago. And this is where we need um, our communities to stand up. This is where we need our communities to continue to demand action. And this is where we need our allies to also utilize the power and the positions that they have in their communities to do something and to push the institutions to change. Um, we have lost so much as a people. We continue to lose so much as a people. Out of 211 American Indian families interviewed in a longitudinal study in the metro area, almost 65% of them live in poverty. We experience some of the highest rates of suicide. We experience some of the highest rates of kidney, kidney disease. We have some of the lowest education attainment rates in the entire country. These are those lasting impacts from the dispossession of land that the University of Minnesota um, committed against our people. This is an international crisis. This is a human rights crisis that we as Indigenous people have experienced. And I think that we even need a more uh, global response to the egregious acts that were committed here. This is Lori. When I was um, asked by Tad if we could identify a tribal researcher as a director at Leech Lake, I sent it out to um, I sent it out to our other programs and departments, such as our Department of Resource Management, our Health Department, our um, human services department and asked, you know, do you have somebody in, in mind? And I received back responses um, from our um, department of resource management, from our health department and from our human services director telling me to tell the University of Minnesota to get off our land, to stay out of our rice beds. And why do we need to do a report to tell them about the harms that they've committed and continue to perpetuate and commit against our people and our land? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I'm just asking. I, I need to like do my due diligence over here um, before I take it to the tribal council and the tribal council appoints. And um, our response here at Leech Lake to like those three paragraphs are it's not substance based. Uh, there's nothing in those words that tell us that they're ready to come to the table and that they're, they want to be part of addressing some sort of solution that they want to partner with tribes and that they acknowledge the harms that they've uh, perpetuated and continue to perpetuate against Indian tribes and our lands. So um, 
that's our response here. <laughs> I mean, that you know, that's not surprising. Um, but I like I, I can I can see where they're coming from, right? That's like, is is this just the U of M patting themselves on their back and being like, oh look, we did this full report. We mean that we really care, and then that's it, right? And but little do they know, like our communities can are going to step up, just like what you were saying, Adriana. Like now, it's on us to really make them see, like, okay, we did the report for you. You can pat yourself on the back about that, but now you need to put this stuff in action, and we're going to sit here. We're going to watch you. We're, right, we're going to watch you and we're going to make sure that you put this stuff in action. So I'm, I hadn't heard this report had come out. So Don, I want to thank you for sharing it with us. Um, and now I've just like, I was talking to somebody and I was like, oh, we're going to have these uh, women from uh, the truth report on the show. Too. And everybody's excited about it. So I'm like, okay, great. I was last one to know about this. So Don, thank you so much for sharing. Because uh, I'm glad that everybody else has heard about this. Right. And so hopefully mm-hmm. now with, with mm-hmm. this show, even more people. We'll hear about this and look this up. And then also just wanting to take a moment to acknowledge that, you know, it sounds very um, huge, that 554 pages, but the report is made up of several reports. And so the tribal research reports that were done by the tribes, they vary in size from about seven pages to 20 pages. And so there are several reports in that, in their stories there. Um, and so it's just... Uh, really important um, that that I say that to not discourage you from reading it because we say it's 554 pages, but take your time with it. You know, read one story at a time. Um, You know, there are particularly sensitive things within that report where you are going to have to stop and you might have to smudge and, um, you know, and so that that's what I wanted to add. What a gift that you have given us uh, as part of, of, of this project, uh, given us accurate, factual, data-driven information. And I, and I emphasize data-driven because our mainstream culture tends to uh, dissuade and discredit anything that isn't, right? So I want to just call that out. Uh, not that I need it to be in that fashion, but we all know that the system uh, takes and looks at whatever little kernel of weakness possibly to destroy a project. Uh, so thank you for the gift uh, to us all. And um, I'm wishing you the very, very best uh, at things going forward. And I will dig deep and ask myself and prompt myself to step up in whatever way that you are asking me to do that as a member of society, as a collectivist who cares and loves um, our indigenous uh, families and, and nations as well. So thank you, Miigwech, uh for all that you've done. So <clears throat> ours is a history, and I say ours as indigenous tribal individuals. And many, uh, and there are other uh, communities of color and cultures here uh, in, in Turtle Island that um, our histories are oral. You know, our stories, our histories are oral. And... I think that efforts like the Truth Project legitimize not only our stories, and legitimize is the wrong word, but it puts forth it puts forth truths 
behind and it substantiates our oral history in terms of our lived experiences as indigenous individuals in this country and the trauma that we have suffered um, at the hands of Europeans, white Europeans that came to this land. And so efforts like this and the fact that this is tribally led, I think is very encouraging. It means to me personally that I know that when I when I came to work for my tribe at Mille Lacs the first time, the one thing I was worried about was whether or not the elders would accept me because I had a higher education. Because of our relationship and, and horrible history with boarding schools, but I think our elders begin to realize that we can become educated and not lose who we are as Indian people. This is Counter Stories. I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendro's group. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Go ahead, Lori. Why don't you start? Okay. And I'm Lori Harper, Director of Education for Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe and a Truth Research Fellow. My name is Misty Blue. I'm a member of the White Earth Nation. I also have ascendancy and relatives out at Lower Sioux Indian Community. Um, I was appointed to be the project coordinator for this. And I'm Adriana Goodwin. I'm a citizen of the Red Lake Nation, and I am a truth researcher and dreamer. Miigwech. Our sister shows, Native Lights and Minnesota Native News, is also covering the release and contents of the Truth Report. We'd encourage you to listen to their shows by visiting www minnesotanativenews.org. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>